0: Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax.
1: Welcome back to the second part of our episode with Leah Robinson. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the first part, check your podcast feed.
2: Obviously, when you find a case that you take forward, it, you know, it has to have some meat. And be, have the standing power to make it through the process, right? I mean, do you kind of think you take a case and then think, I'm going to push to settle this sooner? You're not really intending to go all the way to the mat. You're hoping just by, you know, lawyering up, threatening to sue, mm-hmm. they'll take a step back as a government and say, well, maybe they mean business and we can't ramrod them, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I've been on both sides of that. The, okay. the case that I argued in front of the Missouri Supreme Court right before COVID, $5,000 at issue thousand dollars at issue you know and and so there are times that the amount of money does not matter right there's a principle or some other reason to keep going and then I've been involved with huge dollar numbers where the company is just like let's see how far we can go to get a settlement we're not gonna litigate or like we might file in litigation but we're not actually going to go to the end. That actually is probably the much rarer in my experience you know i think lots of companies go into litigation hoping to settle but fully expecting or willing to go all the way okay. um, i've i've only had you know a small number of situations where we went through you know we started litigation knowing there's no way we were going to go to the end of litigation and we were just going to push for a settlement and we were going to try to get something and then you know just end it like that's really been the exception Okay. Everybody hopes to settle, right? Well, I shouldn't say that. There definitely are cases where we want an answer. We need the answer. And if we can have a settlement that also gives us a going forward answer, yes. fine. Um, but you can't always get that. Sometimes the attorneys litigating the case don't want to talk about additional years. They're not in front of them. You know, They're technically not a part of what the attorney mm-hmm. is responsible for. Most of the time, we can bring audit back into the conversation, so that if we reach a settlement, it includes how the issue would be treated by both sides going forward. But yeah, I I don't know, probably a third of the cases I litigate settle, and the rest go to decision. Okay. So I I don't know how that compares to others, but um, and
2: after being at the IRS and then kind of going on the other side, going at states or going against whatever—that's a bad word—going against, but representing clients in the interests against the state. How do you feel about that, like at the IRS versus the state, that view of we need, do we need to clarify the taxpayer or do we need to beat the taxpayer up? Like, where is the mentality, do you think? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm thinking about that. I definitely think that a lot of the people I worked directly with at the IRS thought that taxpayers were liars. Okay. You know, I, th- I think that was sort of a theme. And I, I remember when I announced that I was leaving to go to private practice, I remember somebody who is now pretty senior in the IRS office of chief counsel, like coming to me and commenting about I was going to the dark side. Yeah, you know, like, the dark like side. Only partly, only partly joking. I mean, I guess I loved chief counsel and I'm still close with a number of people there. You know, multiple people from chief counsel were in my wedding, which happened years after I left <laughs> the chief counsel. So I'm incredibly fond of of my my time there. That being said, there was definitely that mentality. On the state side, I don't know that I see that mentality as bluntly. But I also don't know that they would say to me, right? I think your client is a chief. I think think there's just general skepticism at the audit level, which is appropriate. But often in matters I'm involved in, we go above the audit level and senior audit management. And I, I think that for the most part, senior audit management are very smart, very practical people who want to get to the right answer. Whether that always trickles down is, is another question. You know, I think auditors are, are looking to find adjustments. You know, that's right. their job. I don't fault them for it. That's their job. Sometimes I wish they would be more open-minded about the types of evidence we or like the documents we provide yes. or... Yes. Or the proxies, like, oh, this document doesn't exist, but we have this other thing. You know, yes. often that other thing is just rejected flat out because it's yeah. not what they're hoping to see. But I, you know, I'm often dealing with more senior people and, you know, I I think most of the more senior people I deal with really are are trying, you know, yeah. and, and often succeeding and, and trying to get to the right answer, do the right
2: thing you're only going to get cases where that's really da- that's, there's a line that's not black and white, or we wouldn't take it forward. Because I feel like sometimes auditors misclassify the character of a business. Right? Are you a service provider? Are you software? Are you what are you? Right? Mm-hmm. The digital space in the real world space. And uh, yep. no, we just treat you as because if you deal with tangible personal property, I just had a conversation with a city auditor yesterday. If you sell tangible personal property, like a maintenance person, and it involves tangible personal property, you're a retailer. I'm like. I'm not a retailer. I'm out there wrenching on things and I might have a screw and a bolt and a knife and I might have to wire something, but I'm not I'm not a retailer. I'm not selling them the bolts. I mean, yes, they're going to get left there because I needed to fix the part. But it's just, to me, I thought, really, you're going to put it in that category? And then say, basically, all services are subject to sales tax, right? So that feels like an overreaching um, in that space. And I think definitely, you know, you're working in the digital economy. And there's a lot of, in my opinion, challenges working through what the heck you're selling. Because even within software, like you were saying, that client, they're adding all kinds of stuff to make the software (laughs) more robust. And they don't tell the customer that. They just add to it because it's SaaS. And then it has all these, you know, bells and whistles within it that make it higher functioning. And so right. really... And,
1: and then you look at their it? website, right? You look at the company's website, oh, the how they're advertising it. Or more in the on the corporate tax side, you look at the company's 10K and yes. how they describe themselves. And I mean, I feel like every auditor is going to the website and printing off the descriptions and, you know, it's... And and I get it, the business folks at a company want to describe themselves a certain way, right? They want yep. to appeal to their client base. But that doesn't mean that that's what the technology, really is doing. Right. And you know, I think that's like a very constant conversation with auditors is sure the website says blah blah blah, but if we look at how the the product actually functions, what it mm-hmm. does, you know, from a technology point of view, you know, they're not delivering software, the you know, just in the SaaS space, right? Like right. If, you know, New, New York, in order for there to be a lease of tangible personal property which Mm -hmm. is how the state classifies remote access software. They say it's constructive possession of TPP. Well, what's the TPP? The TPP is the source. where is it? Right. 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 I've always said, like, at least New York's position, which a few other states adopt as well, um, is very schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. They, for purposes of taxability, they treat it like tangible personal property. But Mm -hmm. then for the sourcing, they treat it like a service. Right? And New York law doesn't work that way. It's either TPP, we're delivered, or a service, which is more like a benefit-received concept. But if it's TPP, if the actual TPP is the source code, those zeros and ones, where is it? If the software is right. not actually delivered, it's sitting on a server wherever the company's server is, and if that's not in New York, then sure, it might fall into your taxable category, but you don't get the sourcing. Now, New York, on the other hand, says, "Well, it's it's software, it's zeros and ones, which we consider TPP." But since I can see it on my screen, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm controlling it from here, you know, I, I think the the technology behind that sort of falls apart. Yep. Uh, And I think taxpayers have been very successful in New York matters on this. When they do challenge it, there's, you know, I I think a very high success rate in challenging it. The problem is you have lots of folks who don't challenge it. You have lots of Mm -hmm. vendors who say, push down to the customer, right? So I'm just going to collect. There's enough guidance that I can point to to show why it might be taxable. So I'm going to collect and then the customers are like, but we don't think this is taxable. Mm-hmm. You know, but maybe their total charge, is, their, their total tax is five grand, 10 grand. Right. right? Are they gonna litigate over five grand, 10 no, grand? No. Probably not. Right. And so, or are they not going even if it's more money, are they gonna file a refund claim, but you know, bring more attention to maybe some of their own, you know, tax profile? Like I think, you know. So I, it, it's unfortunately, I think, one of those gotchas where the state, yes. you know, and not and not just New York, you know, a number no. of states have a lot of guidance out there that's enough to cause, you know, most of those smart charts, right? You go to any research engine, you do a smart chart, and you find SAS is taxable in all these different states. Oh, yeah. Yep. But if you then go into some of those states and look at court decisions, you see a different answer. And so it, it's a... You know it, it's a mishmash, and whether or not it's worth taking on the risk is is a is a discussion to have, right? Sometimes yeah. sometimes, if you're just going to push it out to your customers, you know, why take on the risk? On the other hand, if the law is if this if the courts have signaled an answer different than what the departments have signaled, you know, maybe, You should
2: challenge it. Yeah. No, I just feel like there is a lot of overreaching in this space. And it's been, you know, and even like healthy, like information as a service is a great one. Storage. Amazon Web Services, you're paying for security, you're paying for redundancy, you're paying for oversight. I mean, there's a lot that is rolled up in your ability to store stuff on the internet. It's not mm-hmm. just storage of a sled or a slide or whatever they're called, the the you know the computer power drive. And that site is somewhere, right? And it's mm-hmm. transmitted all over the place. But it there's all kinds of things wrapped in that service that don't almost have a situs. So, I think it's really hard to source some of this just besides bill to because ship to is not really anywhere anymore. So, I think that is really an area that is challenging to tax.
1: I agree completely. But the problem with ship to is you still see a lot of old fashioned invoices. Oh, yes. Right? The invoice still has a bill to box. That's right, it does. And even when it's something that is very clearly electronically delivered or remotely accessed, meaning no delivery, you often still see information in the ship to, and it's like legacy invoicing software yeah. that you know puts information in there. And now you're fighting it, right? You're fighting your mm-hmm. own documents because they have a ship to list. That's right. Like we're litigating this issue for one of the big insurance companies in New Jersey right now on information services and mm-hmm. software. Uh And, you know, there's a darn ship, too. And it'll say lower on the invoice electronically
2: delivered. But there's a ship, too. Well, and then uh, that other thing is there's shared services centers in New York. So bills are processed there, billed in Minnesota or whatever, Texas. I mean, you have situations where there's somebody going through all the AR. AR AP, and they're just processing invoices. And then it's being used across an IBM multinational company, right? So there are shared services centers in New York. Well, so of course, it's a bill to there, but they're they're not getting shipped it there, shipped it if you want to ship it. So that is a real problem to overtax in New York when you're billing hundreds of thousands of dollars of license fees to a shared service center that's just paying the bill. So that all yep. the people of the company can have access to these yeah. different products.
1: And and I think that's an area where there's probably a lot of refund opportunity for companies, mm-hmm. both software and information services yep. sourcing. And we're seeing more and more cases where the courts are agreeing that you get to source those uh, right. services. Right. There was a recent yep. Massachusetts case on software. Um, you know, there there's other states guidance that, you know, really mean, you know, if you're buying a lot of software, remote software, or if you're Mm -hmm. buying a lot of information service that is, you know, delivered electronically or accessed electronically, it's worth taking a a look. Now, I am not a huge fan of reverse audits. I've seen reverse audits come back. Me neither. Yep. Right. But on a, on a thoughtful, you know, item by item basis, there there certainly are times when it makes sense to go back and look and see, did you assign your information service 100% to a state that taxes information services because that was the billing or the shipping address? right? But in fact, your users are elsewhere. That's know? right. And sometimes it's just good to keep that in your back pocket for when you have an audit to raise mm-hmm. it as, you know. Yeah,
2: as, as some kind, kind of an arbitrage.
0: Well, and then what we have conversations with our clients about is the opposite, right? It's like, okay, well, if we're pulling this specific invoice out of New York, it's like, well, remember there's like this hand over here that you need to put into New York. They're like, oh yeah. So we're just going to ignore it all the way because at some point it might wash. Sometimes it won't, but then it's like, yeah, we can't just pull things out without thinking of the opposite and putting things back in. Yeah. No.
1: Absolutely. And uh, but but it's sometimes it's worth checking because that Correct. other state might no. not tax it. That's or right. That, or that other state might have guidance that says we assign this to billing address. Right. Well, then you're yep. fine in that state because the billing mm-hmm. address was somewhere else. But in you know, but in some other state where it's not clear, it should be billing address, but rather where the users are right, then it does make sense because you're not going to just move it from one state taxability to another state. You have a, right. a strong basis in the other state to say, oh, your rules say we assign it somewhere else, right? We're not playing games here. We're just following your rules. But this other state says we can look to actual use. You know, sometimes it doesn't always work work out that right. way. Right.
0: Yeah. But- well, and we've kind of been talking about this all along is kind of this like idea of overreaching and whatnot. But I think what we wanted to kind of, Hear from you, Leah, is if you see and where you see kind of governments overreaching kind of beyond what may be allowable under the Constitution. And if you know you can speak to some of those items, if or you know, maybe you don't agree with that statement, you know, from some of the constitutional limitations that there may be some like we're getting real, real close to like just this just isn't allowed by you know the Constitution and whatnot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Post-Wayfair, there's been an assumption that economic nexus is the end of the story, right? Mm-hmm. If you have economic nexus, you're taxable for income tax purposes, for sales tax purposes. And and I don't know that that's actually been answered yet, at mm-hmm. least in the income tax realm. But there's another side to Wayfair that I think doesn't get that much attention. And that is you know, what did Wayfair do? Right. Wayfair basically told us that Quill is not good law. And what did Quill say? Quill said physical presence was enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. So if we get rid of that, if we say kill Quill, right. So that chant that we all remember from a few years ago, <laughs> if we say Quill was killed, That means that the concept that physical presence is enough is gone. Where does that leave us, right? Where, if Quill is no longer good law, what's left as good law? And um, I'll I'll tell a little story, and then I'll say what I think is left as good law. Uh, A number of years ago, um, this case came out in New Jersey called Telebrite, and the decision. And this is while Quill was still good law. The decision in, in the issue in Telebrite was uh, the company had one income tax case, one work from home employee who was a tech person. And the state said that one full-time employee in the state is physical presence and therefore you have nexus. And that's what the court agreed on. And a, a few months after the case came out, I was presenting with a person who was my partner, we were presenting together at some event talking, you know, just case updates and Telebrite was on my list of cases uh, to give the update on. And and I get up there and I say, you know, a lot of people were were surprised by this decision, but like, I think it's the right answer, right? Physical presence doesn't you know, one full-time employee that's physical presence. Like, why are people so surprised by this case? And my partner who I'm presenting with is like, Leah, are you crazy? That case is completely wrong. And I'm like, like what, physical presence? And she's like, no, the person was back office. The person was not doing things to solicit clients to establish and maintain a market. And so their presence shouldn't have counted. And I was like, physical presence, right? Like like I am a, a firm believer in physical presence. I think Talibraya was right. So she and I are having this whole argument, kind of forget, like a friendly argument, um, but kind of forgetting that we have an audience. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're partners at the same firm. and We're, you know, we're arguing and, and it was all in good fun. And afterwards, people were like, oh, that was the best part. And I'm like, it was embarrassing that my partner and I are arguing with each other. And they're like, no, 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 that was the best part. At the time, I thought I was absolutely right because of Quill. But now that I look back, now that Quill is, is gone, I look back and I realize that she was right. And, and I think the answer is without Quill, physical presence isn't enough. What do we do if we cross Quill? You know, if we think about the list of Supreme Court cases dealing with Nexus, if we cross Quill out, right, Quill is gone. Where do we go to next for determining what an appropriate Nexus standard is? Because Wayfair didn't, right? Wayfair remanded, right? It killed Quill. But it remanded on whether or not that test was a good test. And then mm-hmm. it settled. Um, so if we look at what the Supreme Court has actually said, next in line, we look to Scripto and Tyler Pipe, right? Scripto and Tyler Pipe were two separate cases that both supported the concept that it doesn't matter if you have your own in-state physical presence or somebody else in the state. If there is an in-state body establishing and maintaining your market, that is nexus. So fast forward now, right? Think about that. the Telebrite facts. You have one person in the state, and all they're doing is back office IT. Quill tells us that their physical presence is not relevant, so we're left with Tyler Pipe and Scripto. Is that one person who's just doing IT work establishing and maintaining your in-state market? And I think under those facts, the answers are pretty clear. No, that yes, you have a physical presence, but we don't care about that. But what you just have is somebody establishing and maintaining your in-state market. And I think this is sort of the next generation of Nexus challenge that we should expect to see. And that is where you have a physical presence, but that physical presence is is not related. To right, establishing and maintaining their in-state market.
0: Yeah. But is that back office development person creating your website that is putting cookies on someone's computer that is constantly pushing content to people that brings them to their website and is keeping that person perpetually buying? So by you know, going here to here,
2: is it establishing a market? So yeah, and, but, and but then you- is it establishing a market in the state in which the person is domiciled? That's the bigger issue to me. Like what really is happening is you're open for business. And so you're gonna sell to anybody if you can get it to them. And it doesn't matter where you are because the boundaries of you know your location is no longer your limits. So I think that's the challenge of is the intention behind even that marketing guy in the state. Really, at that particular state, no. Right. It you isn't. can have a marketing person in a state who's assigned to a different. You're region. just marketing, right? I mean, you're marketing to anybody who buy yeah. from you, and you have the ability to sell to them. So, I do think that's a problem. Yeah. So, I, I think there's a lot of overreach there. We we are litigating
1: an issue in a southern state where we initially raised exactly this argument. They had, you know, one to three in-state people who were marketing people, but they were not assigned to marketing um, for that state. They both mm-hmm. had, different, or they were there at different times, but they had different regions. And yes. so when we initially took this particular matter to court, we raised exactly this argument. In fact, we had, we had finished our, our petition a few days before Wayfair came out, but it wasn't due yet. And then Wayfair came out and we added this argument. We're like, what? Like, Quill's gone. So now, like we weren't even going to challenge Nexus because of Quill and we had one to two people in the state or one to three people in the state. So we weren't going to challenge Nexus. Wayfair comes out and we threw in a challenge to Nexus saying under Tyler Pipe and Scripto, these people weren't establishing and maintaining the in-state market in that particular state. And we we ended up pulling a nexus argument from that matter because we think it distracts from from the you know the the primary issue. But I do think it's going to be litigated. I actually was speaking at the MTC annual conference the year Wayfair came out. So Wayfair came out in like June 20th, 2018. Okay. I spoke at the MTC conference in August. And in front of a room that is almost all government officials, uh-huh. I make this argument. I, you know, I I say, look, I, I get it. Wayfair is great for you guys, but there's also an angle that you know maybe some of our you know company physical presence um, doesn't give nexus, and there
2: has to be actual um, purposeful availment, not just open for business sending something via FedEx or via the internet. Yeah. yeah. So I'm
1: saying this in front of a room of almost all government folks, and this was actually reported. Uh, this 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 little argument and conversation that I'm about to say was reported by State Tax News because they were there. So so I say this. And there's you know, a very well-known uh, uh, government person from a northeast state sitting there, shaking his head no. And a very well-known government person from a southern state gets, you know, we get into an argument um, and he's disagreeing with me. Uh, and that's sort of a public conversation. But then at the same conference, you know, as I'm having coffee, somebody from a different state comes by and says, you know. You might be on something. And then at dinner that night, another government official um, actually invited me to fly out to their state and meet with their senior management to talk about issues like this so they can think about them. So even though a lot of state government folks' initial reaction to what I just said is likely to be, absolutely not. We've got you if you have a physical mm-hmm. presence and we've got you if, if you listen to our them. state. Yep. I think some of them take a step back and think not what they want the answer to be, but if we look at what's left as the Supreme Court has interpreted due process and commerce laws, if we think about what's left, right, Tyler Pipe crypto are still good law. And those cases did not extend nexus except where there was the establishing and maintaining of an market. Now, I think to Meredith's point, or where her question was going is, can't you do that through technology? Mm-hmm. And now it's and I do think that that's a, a difficult area that the courts haven't gotten into yet. You know, cookie nexus, honestly, I, I have less of a problem with cookie nexus
2: than with the South Dakota Wayfair Standard. I would rather see cookie nexus as the standard. Because I Googled you. So I'm in state. You reached out to me. That's an affirmation that we've connected, not just this random, like, I got stuff, right? Oh, huh, well, interesting. Also, well, so,
1: I, I mean, for me, it's a little bit more of... Oh, uh,
2: because you're tracking in and marketing to me.
1: Well, no. I, so I, I still think physical presence is, is an easier standard. And cookies, mm-hmm. even though they're intangibles, they still take up space, right? It's yeah. taking, my hard drive, right, has a limited amount of space. So even things that are intangible, like software, they still take up space on a server, mm-hmm. on a hard drive, et cetera. So I have less, you know, like, I, you know, Approach to things. Let's get to the technology, not mm-hmm. what we, not how we think things work, because what do we know? All right, let's talk to the IT folks and understand how the technology actually works. And so, you know, cookies are data files that are saved in your computer. Um, so I have less of a concern with something like cookie access versus, um, I just I'm making sales to customers in a state. Like, yeah right my website's not limited to that state anybody in the us or maybe anybody in the world can access my website you know that shouldn't in in my mind pull me into a state but if if i have decided to set up my website in a way that it will seek to put cookies on your website
2: i think i have i have taken that out. next step Right. You've now, taken that maybe, next step to really go do that person. Yeah. And maybe that's still insubstantial, right? Or, you
1: know, like maybe that's not enough. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, if if there's a spectrum, right, if Nexus is a spectrum, cookies to me are closer to Nexus than just the, the way, you know, the South Dakota standard of having sales into a state. You know, to me, that's farther afield from what the right answer should should be. And you know, we don't have a right answer. The Supreme Court absolutely knocked Quill out of the running, but it didn't say that the South Dakota test was itself the right answer. It remanded, and then it, that issue didn't go back up. So you know, but but what they have decided was Tyler Pipe was Scripto, and so you know, I think
2: that there's more. Um, yeah, the purposeful availment still out there. there. Possibly, yeah. I've thought about that too. Well, I have clients that say to me, we just don't want to sell to these states anymore. I'm like, you're open for business. How are you going to do that? How are you going to tell your website? If you're in this state, you're not getting anything. Technologically, even, it's sort of an interesting issue because people do get frustrated. And then there's that whole thing of like, well, we're already collecting in like 15 states. What's another two? I mean, at some point you put the system in place to manage the compliance. It doesn't really kill you to add a couple more states. You do get some volume, you know, benefits critical mass. So it is really an interesting push pull. So although the interesting thing about like the compliance effort,
1: right? Like if you look at all the state briefs that were filed as amicus in Wayfair, mm-hmm. you know, the states uh, and not every state, you know, again I'm I'm being a little too general here, but a number of states signed on to briefs that said compliance is easy, right? I know, I- right? There, there's these cheap software things you could right? But then take a step back. And then the states were saying, Oh, wait a minute, we can't we can't start um applying Wayfair yet, the South Dakota case yet, um, because we
2: need to fix our technology. It's gonna That's take right. us right
1: Molly? We can't wait adjust it.
2: No, we can't adjust the data. Colorado was location-based reporting. They couldn't collect on behalf of all these other cities. They were like one only. And then they and then the Department of Revenue was saying to us, just pick the ones you need. I'm like. You're kidding me. I don't know what I need. I'm a remote seller. I could need this one and that one next month, not a need at all. Of course I need to put the money in the right bucket. So right. I have to open them all. So it's interesting. So I don't I don't fault the states for wanting quill
1: to fall. And I don't fault the states for supporting a South Dakota standard. I mean, I don't personally agree with it, but I get it, right? Raised revenue. Yeah. But I do fault them for signing onto briefs that talk about how easy, easy it is. is. Because it's just not it. To me, you know, as somebody who's worked in this area and probably half the work I do is sales tax, Mm -hmm. there's nothing easy. We litigate sales tax all the time. We litigate taxability. We litigate it under streamlined. We litigate it in non-streamlined states. It's not clear in the states, but Mm -hmm. a ton of effort into advisory opinions. And so just the taxability determinations aren't easy. Uh -uh. Compliance, you know, the the technology of compliance is not easy. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I... I've always been very upset at, at how easy it was, like how it was presented to the Supreme Court in Amicus uh-huh. Briefs as simple, straightforward,
0: by someone who's never probably it. filed a return. <laughs> yeah. Don't even go to the re- don't even go to the filings <laughs> of the returns. Like some states can't you can't even fill out the form to get the license. Like we couldn't get a New York State license because their online system, which is the only way to get a sales tax in New York. Has to have two responsible parties, but this woman is a sole proprietor operating as an LP that is her and a business, mm-hmm. but the other responsible party is not a human. So we can't officially get our license. So it's like, yep, the yep. systems aren't even set up to even like give you the chance to even send you money or, or like foreign companies who oh, yeah. Don't,
2: yeah, right? they don't have a you social have security a, number. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Social security numbers. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You're like, sorry, we want your foreign money, but we can't take it (laughs) because you don't have the right numbers. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. It's, um, Sales tax is
1: always going to be complicated be- because you don't tax everything, right? Yeah. There's there's taxable items and then exempt items and taxable service,
0: taxable and- people and non-taxable <laughs> people. <laughs> Right, so and- it's,
1: it's always going to be complicated, and that's fine, right? Like it's that's not like okay, we just it, it's going to be complicated, but to under to undervalue how complicated it is to mm-hmm. me is just too results driven, and that's not what I think departments are supposed to do, right? Change your yeah. laws. You know, do do things the right way, be above board, admit, hey, this is gonna be complicated to do, but we think there's appropriate reasons to do it, right? I would have yeah. preferred that message sent to the Supreme Court, like, yes, this will cost companies a lot of money to mm-hmm. come into compliance with, and it will cost us states a lot of money to change our systems to accommodate, but we think there are reasons to do it anyway, right? That would have been a message. Yeah. But you know, the change I'd like to see in the sales tax world. Is I'd like to see combined reporting
2: as an option. Right? right. Like you com- mean for like, all entities multi-owned and not F E I N driven? Yeah. So like in the income tax world, we
1: have a combined report. Mm-hmm. And in some states, you determine the separate taxable income of each entity mm-hmm. and you mush them all together. And it's one report that gets filed. Right. It's one signature. Some of them require separate signatures, but you know, it's <laughs> one audit. Etc., why don't we have that on the sales tax world, right? You have have a corporate group with tons of different entities that are each, you know, I talked to some tax directors at at companies who are signing hundreds of returns. You know, why not have combined reporting for sales tax? You know, I, I don't think it would impact the total dollars at all. It would just be a. It would ease compliance, and mm-hmm. it would ease the states' compl. You know, the their mm-hmm. intake of the returns, their audit, et cetera. You know, I, I'd really like to see a, a movement be, you know, behind that. I've talked to a few directors, like tax tax department of revenue tax directors, about it, and they're like, "Oh, that sounds like a good idea. Like, we should do that." And then the conversation <laughs> never goes anywhere else. Right? Can't I, do it. We're
2: <laughs> set up an old, antiquated way, and we just can't. Pivot
1: from yeah. that, but but yeah. I I would like you know I don't know I think like like what are things that can make taxpayers' lives a little bit easier? Yes, that, that don't cost state revenue and right. in fact maybe save the state some money as well. Yeah. you know, combined reporting on sales tax would be at the top of my list for that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and Leah, I think that's the kind of perfect noodle to let us you know sit on as we wrap up this conversation. You know. We had a long list of things we wanted to talk to you about and we got to one and a half of them. So okay. we really appreciate kind of this this really interesting conversation. Some, you know, Judy and I are not litigators. So some of that insight, we really appreciate your time. So thank you so much for being here. And that's another episode of Saltivation. Until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.